Hey, 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 and ho, ho, ho from your girl, Carla Renata. Happy holidays, everybody. It is December 22nd, 2019. This is one of my second to last broadcasts for the year. It has been a crazy, fun-filled, fantabulously positive year, but I couldn't leave y'all hanging this week, even though the Black Hollywood Live studios are on hiatus until January 2nd. I will come back to you live on January 5th, but you know, I got you covered this week and uh, December 29th when I will give you the best of The Curvy Critic with Carla Renata on Black Hollywood Live. Now, if this is your first time joining me, please click the subscribe button down below and give me a big old thumbs up to let me know you were here. And always give me some comments, go into that chat room. I am chatting with you live. So even though this is taped, I will be talking to you live. So please join me in the chat room and we can have a little chat chat as we go along. So having said that, I have so much to get to you today. I have the cast and creatives of Spies in Disguise, Just Mercy, and my reviews on Cats and Star Wars, baby. And I have a whole award season breakdown situation that I'm gonna wait and hold off on until next year right as we get into the Spirit Awards, the Golden Globes, the SAG Awards, you know, the plethora just goes on and on and on. But I will get into that then because I feel like I should probably wait and see what what other nominations are going to come down the pipe. So having said that, let me tell you what I have going on for you today. First up is this movie, Spies in Disguise. Now, I'm not going to lie. This is one of those films that is a result as as that is a result of the Fox and Disney merger, the Fox and Disney merger, Spies in Disguise. So it's produced by uh, Fox and Disney and Blue Sky Animation. That's who is producing the film. And it's directed by Nick Bruno and Troy Quane, Quane, Troy Quane. Oops, sorry, Troy, if I messed up your name. But Insty Who, um, it's directed by them. And this was a lovely, lovely film. It's based on a short story called Pigeons Impossible, which I kind of love that. And y'all know how much I dig my animation. So I was all about the animation situation, especially because it stars who, what? My boy, Will Smith. I talk about Will Smith all the time on The Curvy Critic with Carla Renata at Black Hollywood Live. I adore him. So it suffices to say that I was running out of my door as fast as I could to go see Spies in Disguise. And it was pure comedy. The kids are going to love it. The adults are going to love it. It's got some great messages. The animation is mwah, primo. You're just absolutely going to love it. But before I finish the review on Spies in Disguise, here is an interview that I did in a roundtable situation. So there are other people that ask these questions. There are other people's voices that you will hear other than mine. I did not do this interview alone, but I wanted to cut it up and let you hear his answers because he has some really fantabulous things to say. And he is who? Masioka. Now you guys might remember Masioka from the Heroes franchise on NBC. That is what broke him. That is what made him a big star. He most recently was on Hawaii Five O. I actually guest starred with him way back in the day on an episode of Reba where we both played uh, IRS tax employees. It was pure comedy. We had a good time. Insty who? Listen to this episode. Episode. Listen to this interview with Masi, and I'll be right back. Oh yeah, Kimura. You know he's kind of like a kind of not the last boss, but like a, the middle boss. You know he's a, a brilliant dark web 
hacker, I guess, and he's a modern-day Yakuza guy, so, you know, he can get whatever he wants. At the core, he's a teddy bear, you know, which is kind of fun. So that's what's really fun about this character, where he could play this gruff villain, but you get to see a different side of him, you know, that the worst thing that he's ever done in, in his life was peeing in the pool, right? <laughs> casting director Christian Kaplan, actually he was in casting a different anime movie, and he brought me in, and as I was reading for that, I said, you know what? We're just germinating, you know, in the idea phases for this other movie. Would you mind just doing a test voice for this? It's like, okay, sure. And then it all kind of came all together. I love the fact that he has that duality of this tough exterior, but this literally this gushy <laughs> interior, probably. So Last week, I was uh, in Santa Barbara. I saw this guy talking to a pigeon. And I'm like, oh, interesting. And then he told the pigeons, like, I know you're with the FBI. I know you're spying on me. I was like, oh, my God. Wow. The Disney marketing must have gone viral or something like that. <laughs> Really or I've been thinking about the movie a little bit too much and I'm starting to hallucinate everything. In fact, you guys all start to look like pigeons to me. Yeah? It's like, it's like... So what's it like for you to be, have that background as a digital artist and then be in an animated film that requires that skill? Yeah, it's, it's, it's so fascinating. Uh, first of all, I worked at ILM and worked on the Star Wars 1, 2, and 3. So you can, you can find you can find my name in the credits. It is definitely different, but it's also, I love it because it's, you know, it's, they're both very collaborative. Uh, you know, and it's very creative. It's, uh, I love the idea of using computers to solve creative problems. I think that's a, a fantastic thing. And for me, I ha what it allows me to do is it, has, it allows me to understand the process and have a lot of respect for the animators. Like, I know what it takes to render that one scene. And, you know, if we all of a sudden on a whim say, you know, I don't want to match that. I want to say a different line and change this. Or I want to go over and... I want to improvise 16 seconds and not 14 seconds. I know what those extra two seconds mean to the animators. So what it allows me to do is be more technical uh, in terms of my, my acting, whether it's on live action or voice, uh, because of my understanding of what goes on behind the scenes. And I also have a respect for the process. I, have a, I could have a shorthand. When they know, it's like, Monsi, don't stand there because I know we're having a green screen. We're going to comp it later on. Uh, so if you move, yeah, I, no problem. Because I know if I do this, that's another $50,000 worth of uh, effect shot that they have to do, right? But some actors will not think about that. So it gives me the appreciation and the ability to communicate, understand the process uh, so I can adjust, technically adjust my acting to uh, uh, you know, make it, uh, the process easier and better for the animators. But what I can do as an actor is I want to make sure we're you know, culturally authentic, right? So uh, I want, you know, especially in this day and age, we want to make sure we're, we're uh, appropriately, you know, and because nobody wants to, like, portray cultural, you know, uh, misrepresent them uh, intentionally, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, so certain things like earlier rendering, I said, ah, I wouldn't, there's, yakuzas with tattoos are a stereotype, but they wouldn't wear this much tattoo or things like that. So those are things I would, I would comment on. Uh, but other than that, you know, I feel like you know, that's, that's a creative choice that everyone makes. So you know, I want to respect that and be collaborative and just add on to what they've created. So the spy stuff is fun. And it's, you know, it's escapism, right? That's why we do film, why we love watching films. It's the things that you would never do. You know? And unfortunately, I had a chance to do that you know, on some of my original you know, my, my hero stuff where I could do a lot of the stunts and stuff. But it's all, so I always enjoy these kind of spy films. You know, it's a, and it's a fan for the fun for the whole family. You know, hopefully kids will want to be spies one day. Or maybe not. Or pigeons. Yeah, one of them. Yeah. Would you have any aspirations to direct an animation film of your own? I would love that. You know, I'm Japanese. I was immersed in Japanese culture. So manga and anime is my life, you know. To be able to work on an anime film, uh, and probably more anime than CG, you know, because, look, uh, Pixar and, and Disney and, you know, Blue Sky, Dreamers, I mean, they have amazing... Air. And I know how much work and 
you know, time goes into that. But what I can bring in uniquely is probably kind of the concept of the Hollywood storytelling uh, mixed in with the Japanese background. So I would love to work with Japanese anime and kind of like bring that to the U.S. side. So maybe some of these days I would love that. I would love to see you do that. Oh, thank you, thank you. I would love that yeah, some days. If, if any, many people say that, you know, maybe we get the, the mouse house to pony up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here's $300 million to do a movie. It's like, Cool. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Happy holidays. Cheers. Thank you. Masi, that was great. I loved hearing about how you were an animator on Star Wars 1, 2, and 3. Who knew that? I didn't know that, but it was great hearing about that. It was great hearing about your directing aspirations, and good luck with Spies in Disguise when it breaks on Christmas Day. Now, as an extra added bonus, as I said at the top of the show, I also did an interview in roundtable fashion, same way I did with Masi, with the directors Nick and Troy, and here's some excerpts from that interview as well. Take a listen. I'm Nick Bruno, director of Spies in Disguise. And I'm Troy Quain, director of Spies in Disguise. So it was originally, there was a short uh, called Pigeon Impossible by Luke Smartel. Um, that it was just a, a simple, funny little um, idea of a spy trying to have his lunch and a pigeon keeps getting in the way. That was basically the inspiration to build off of and build this idea of what would be more annoying than having a pigeon interrupt a spy's lunch is if the spy got turned into a pigeon. You're always looking for ways to make things get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so we both read a first draft of a script about 2013 and fell in love with the idea of getting to make a big, fun spy movie. And then at, at its heart, it really was a story about these two characters, odd couple, who have to sort of save each other in order yeah. to save the world. And it's had a, as much fun and action that it had. It had a really great heartfelt message behind it. And that was really appealing, especially because we both have kids and families, and it's something we try and tell them all the time. Like, they play sports. You've got to work together. A team is more than one person. And, and that was really the genesis of the, the film. When we started, especially with Will, right, uh, when we were modeling and coming up with the character of Lance Sterling, we knew we had to have somebody that would stand up against James Bond and uh, James Bourne, Ethan Hunt, and we looked back to the heroes that we had growing up, and Will Smith was one of them. So we made this character like Will Smith, and when it came time to saying who do we want to get, we were like, to get Will Smith, can we do that? <laughs> we're like, oh, we'll, we'll ask, right? So um, we got a we got a meeting with him, and I'll tell you to this day, like we were about to pass out. But uh, you know, obviously it went very well. But it, I think it's again, it's because of the message we had. You know, we know that this is the first time many kids are going to see a spy movie, mm-hmm. right? And we felt there was a responsibility to say something with that in a world where everyone's fighting fire with fire. This movie is really about people, despite their different philosophies, working together. And, and I think he was really touched by that. And, that's was the most important thing for all of us. Yeah, ca- casting is the biggest part. I mean, as, as hard as it was to cast a character like Lance, who's kind of cocky and charismatic, but you want to cheer for him, but at, at some point you're, you're going, no, Lance, no! You needed someone to, to, to do that, and Will Smith was the guy. And on the other side, you've got Walter, his gadget guy, who's a little socially awkward, a little shy, uh, but super smart, but a little naive, and that could go, you don't, you don't want him to come across as being silly. So that was a really complex conglomeration of, of ideas we had for the other character and as soon as we met with Tom and, and heard his voice I mean he brings such sincerity and I think that's Walter's superpower he's such a sincere character he really does believe in something and he's willing to go the distance for that and so it was really important to find someone who was charming and funny and sincere and uh, as soon as we heard Tom uh, we were like oh that is that is the guy so same thing we pitched him the idea and he just loved 
what we were saying behind. He loved the comedy of it. He thought it was ridiculous with a, a pigeon in all the best ways. Um, but he really liked the idea of, you know, we're stronger together by bringing, you know, even though Lance is amazing on his own, he's better with the team. And, and so they, they both got behind it. They've been amazing collaborative partners ever since. Let me ask you this. Being people that create animated films, if this was your film and you were the spy, yeah. what kind of animal would you be as a spy? Be a pigeon. <laughs> no, no. Are you kidding me? Pigeons are the, the perfect spy. That's the genius of, of Walter's crazy idea. I mean, you can fly really fast, right? The pigeons fly up to 92.7 miles an hour. The only bird that can catch them is a peregrine falcon, so that's pretty awesome. But pigeons can bank. They got eyes on the side of their head, which means they can see in almost 360 degrees. No one's going to sneak up on you if you can see behind you. That's why Lance says, I can see your face and my butt at the same time. It's a pretty good superpower. They can see UV light. Right? So that means, you know, they believe they can see infrared, so you're not going to get tripped up by sensors and everything like that. And uh, pigeons are everywhere in the world. They're in every major city, so no one's going to notice a pigeon when there's a hundred other ones around you. Okay, you got a good point. We got it, right? <laughs> they're they're the right. perfect spy animal. It's all good, it's all good. If we do nothing else with this movie, it's to make everyone love pigeons a little <laughs> bit more. Like, when you think about it, there's other animals with amazing abilities, but if a squid was sitting here right now... We wouldn't care. You'd no. be like, what's that squid doing here? <laughs> Really, it, Pigeon, you'd be like, get it out of here. It's an amazing thing, because you were telling a story, you went on vacation with his kids, and once you notice a pigeon, you start going everywhere. They're, they're everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. And you know, you gotta start going, spy. You go to the grocery store, it's like spy. <laughs> you, know? you go you go to Disneyland, you're like, spy. All of a sudden you go, wait a minute, they're everywhere, but you don't even realize until I was you start literally picking. in the Pirates of the Caribbean ride with my kids. And it was just it was just perched on one of the little walls there, and they're like, "For real, there's a spine." <laughs> Birds do work for the government. We call this a "Have Your Cake and Eat It Too" project because we love spy movies. I mean, Evans. The question is usually, have you, "Did you watch a lot of spy movies to do research for this movie?" It's like, no, I watch a lot of spy movies because love watching spy movies. I mean, every time a new Bond movie comes out, they do they play all the reruns of all the old ones, and I'm there on the couch with my popcorn. So yeah, it, it really is a love letter to all those spy movies and all those spy characters, you know, we, we love, and then just putting our own twist onto it. But like Nick had mentioned, this hopefully is one of the first movies family gets to go see a spy movie together. So you want to have those little nods that the parents can wink at and say, oh, I, I know where that, that's a little nod to that, but then also have it accessible to the kids and people who are seeing it for the first time. So you're not reliant on having to know those tropes, but you get to enjoy so. it. It's safe to say Spies in Disguise is worth it to see, if nothing else, to see these pigeons and how they do their thing. Because I love that line that um, one of the directors referred to where he says, I can see your face and my butt at the same time. That's in the commercial. And every time I hear it, I laugh out loud because it's what? Hella funny. But Spies in Disguise deals with this top spy. His name is Lance Sterling. That's played by Will Smith how he goes about saving the world with his trusty nerdy sidekick played by Tom Holland and his character in the his character's name in the film is Walter. So again, this is produced by Fox in tandem with Disney. It is directed by Nick Bruno and Choi Kwan and it opens on Christmas Day. Now, let's talk about cats. Was it perfect? Yeah, I can't roll my R's. Was it perfect or did it need some catnip? I have mixed feelings about this because personally, I didn't care for Cats that much. I didn't care for the musical when it was on Broadway. So I was hoping that the film would change my mind. It kind of didn't. It didn't change my mind. But one of my fellow film critics, her name is Katia. Katia and her uh, site and her handle is called Cup of Soul Show. 
Katya actually brought up a really good point. This cast is a diverse cast, which the Broadway show was not. The Broadway show was not diverse. It was a bunch of white people in cat costumes dancing. That's what it was. There might have been a sprinkle of black, Latino, or Asian here and there every once in a while in the ensemble, but very rarely did one of the did any of the leads have a person of color in it until my good girlfriend Lilius White was cast as Grizabella on Broadway. So that role of Grizabella was originally um, created by Betty Buckley. And Betty Buckley at the time was on a show called, I think it was called Eight is an it was either Eight is Enough. I think it was called I think it was called Eight is Enough back in the day on ABC. Insty Who, she was the original Grizabella. If you have an opportunity to check out the YouTube of her singing it, it is absolutely glorious. Her voice is completely angelic. Having said that, the other person of color that I know for a fact either played Grizz or she did it in concert is Leia Salonga and Leia Salonga was the was the lead in Miss Saigon back in the day and she also did Les Mis she did the 25th anniversary of Les Mis when they aired that on PBS a couple of weeks ago around Thanksgiving weekend but in this version of Cats we have Miss Jennifer Hudson playing Grizabella we have Jason Derulo playing Rum Tug Tugger we have um Dame Judy Dench playing Old Deuteronomy. We have Ian McClellan playing Gus the Theater Cat and an all-star cast plethora of other people. Now, this is what I have to say about that. I know that when it comes to film, that the producers feel like they got to throw a whole bunch of star names up in a, a, a musical to um, make it work. There's a reason that the show did well on Broadway. There's a reason that people love Cats because they loved the theater experience. And those people that brought the theater experience to life, they were not names. They were not big stars. They were just people that were in the theater community, either in London or here in the, in the United States. So it always bothers me when, they, when Hollywood takes a, a musical and they throw a bunch of stars in it because they think that that's going to sell it. Die-hard people that love those musicals, they're going to see it regardless of who's in it. I know people that are going to see Cats that didn't even like Cats, but they're going to see it because they're a fan of Broadway and they want to support Broadway and film the same way we support Broadway on the stage. Having said all of that, my girl Katia brings up a good point. I digressed and I'm going back to Katia's point. Katia said that the, the cast is very diverse in the film. It is. We have people that are a little fluffier. We have black people. We have Asian people. We have older people. We have people of all different genres, ages, nationalities in this cast, which is a great thing. We have the best of the best ballet dancers in this movie, musical, which we also had on Broadway. That's a good thing, and that was another one of Katia's points. One of the things I thought I wasn't going to like was the the digitalization of the cat costumes, that actually didn't bother me that much. It didn't bother me at all. I actually um, kind of enjoyed it. Um, it was it was nice. Um, the story itself is based on a T.S. Eliot poetry, a book of poetry. So when you take a book of poetry and you don't properly layer it in context to make it a full rounded out story, it seems a little disjointed. And so Cats felt a little disjointed to me for that reason. It felt like that when I saw it on stage. It felt like that when I saw it in the theater. 
It wasn't my favorite movie going experience. It really wasn't. But the thing that made it enjoyable was, oddly enough, Taylor Swift. Because Taylor Swift played this cat. She came down in full-on a la Moulin Rouge style, singing her face off, dancing her, dancing her toes off. And she was giving you the best of everything that she knows how to do in one fell swoop. She was one of my favorites. Ian McClellan as Gus the Theater Cat was one of my favorites. Judy Dench as Old Deuteronomy was one of my favorites. Now, I will say this. Judy Dench and Ian McClellan with that talk singing, I'm not a big fan of the talk singing. I don't like it at all, actually. But if you're going to do it, you need to watch Ian McClellan and Judy Dench do it in Cats because they could give a master class on it because they were what? Fantabulous. Now, let's get to Grizabella and that song, Memory. I have heard Jennifer Hudson sing this song on a plethora of shows. I've seen her sing it on The Voice. I've seen her sing it on a lot of daytime talk shows in anticipation of the film being released um, on December 20th. Now, I think I may have said Christmas Day, but it's December 20th. When I heard her sing it in the film, I was not that impressed until she got to the key change where it goes, memory, all on and on, that part right there. I wasn't impressed until she got there. Then she kind of sounded like Jennifer Hudson. Up until that key change, there was a lot of emoting and a lot of breathing going on. I don't know if she was directed to do that or not. It wasn't my favorite thing to listen to in the film. And let me just say, before y'all send me hate mail, I love Jennifer Hudson. I am not hating on J-Hud. I adore her. Her voice is parallel to none. Nobody can sing like that. Nobody. Nobody has pipes like that. So, of course, she was the perfect choice to sing Memory in Cats. Of course, she was the perfect choice to be Grizabella. She just didn't bring it as strongly as I thought she was going to. And I feel like all that emoting and stuff that worked really well for her when she played Effie in Dreamgirls undermined her acting in Cats as Grizabella. So, that's what I have to say about that. So, would I suggest that you go see it? Yes, I would suggest that you go see Cats because like I always tell you, opinions are like buttholes. Everybody has one. So make up your mind as to whether or not you like it. My opinion, it wasn't my cup of tea. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. But, I, you know, it is what it is. But it was released on December 20th by Universal Pictures. It is in theaters right now, just in time for the holidays. So take the kiddies. It is very kid-friendly, so you can take the kids to see it, and, and kids may enjoy it. There weren't any children at the screening that I attended, and I may see it again just to get a new, fresh perspective on it with an audience, and I might come back and talk to y'all about that. All right, so there's that about Miss Cats. Next up is my all-time favorite. You know what it is. It's Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. Baby, you know, this this Star Wars, unfortunately, has gotten the lowest, is one of the second lowest rated Star Wars episodes to be released. Lowest rated. Lowest rated Star Wars episodes to be released. I loved it because as a diehard Star Wars fan, it gave me a lot of nostalgia because this is supposedly going to be the last chapter. So if this is the last chapter, it gave me as a fan everything I needed to see. And I can't tell you what it was that was everything I needed to see because I don't want to spoil it for you. But what I will say is there's lots of nostalgia. There's lots of cameos of some people that and characters that we know and love. The way they tied up Carrie Fisher's 
storyline as Princess slash General Leia is absolutely very, very tasteful. And what I also loved about this is the fact that it's centered more on Rey. Usually in these Star Wars pictures, it focuses on a female character all the time. And not female, my bad. The male characters, it focuses on the male characters all the time. And it puts a lot of emphasis on what the guys are doing. And the girls are kind of, you know, background, so to speak. Ray was not background. Ray was front and center. But they did kind of sideline my girl, Kelly Marie Tran, who played Rose. And they sidelined my girl, Naomi Aki, who plays Janna. I was expecting to see more from Janna because she is a new character that's being introduced into the franchise. But there is a surprise element about Janna at the end of the movie. So you might want to stay and, and watch that. There are no, um, there are no post-credit, uh, scenes in this one because it's the last one so there are no post-credit scenes to look for so if you want to leave during the credits you can leave but um i would just stay through it just to be respectful of all the people that work so hard digitally to bring that to us i enjoyed star wars the rise of the skywalker people came to my page and they gave me hate mail i don't care my opinion is my opinion. You don't have to like Star Wars, but I love Star Wars. It it reminds me of my childhood. It reminds me of... it. Star Wars has been a journey of mine throughout my whole entire life as a film. So I loved it. I enjoyed it. I say go see it. I say take some people to go see it. It's the holiday season. Like, how you going to like explicitly hate on something? That's just very Scrooge-ish. And I'm not Scrooge. So there you have that. So Star Wars, again, is produced by Disney. It's directed by J.J. Abrams. And J.J. Abrams, you did that. Okay? You did that. Um, all right. So that's that. Next up is Just Mercy. Now, I remember talking about this film when I came back from the Toronto International Film Festival. I talked about how powerful it was, how much it messed me up, and um, how I was absolutely positive that three, three, four people in the film were going to get recognized for those performances. Jamie Foxx, Michael B. Jordan, Rob Morgan, and Tim Blake Nelson, because they were absolutely fan-freaking-tastic. But... I'm not going to talk anymore. I'm going to let you listen to these interviews with Brian Stevenson shortly to be followed right behind that with an interview with Jamie Foxx and uh, Michael B. Jordan about Warner Brothers' new film, Just Mercy, that's releasing on Christmas Day. Take a look. And Hi, Brian. Hello. Nice to be face-to-face -face with you. Yes. Last at last. Yes, and you too. <laughs> so, there's a line in the film where one of the characters says... Um, what does he say? Ah, rehabilitation is a 70-year-old joke. Hmm. What does that mean exactly? I think we've abandoned a commitment to helping people recover. We've become uh, governed by fear and anger, where we only want retribution, we only want punishment. And I think it's made us not only unhealthy, but unsafe. Mm -hmm. You know, we have high rates of violence in this country because we're not actually responding to the health care crisis that we have. We said that people who are drug addicted and drug dependent are criminals. We're going to use the criminal justice system when we should have said those people have a health need and we need our health care system to respond. We could actually create safer communities if we were willing to talk about rehabilitation, talk about recovery, talk about treatment, talk about trauma and abuse. Uh, but we don't do it because I think we have been distracted by people who say just be angry, just be afraid. And when you allow fear and anger to shape your politics and your policies, 
you facilitate injustice. You accept things you shouldn't accept. You tolerate things you shouldn't tolerate. Okay. What is the difference between the very first time you showed up on death row and the most recent time you showed up on death row, your wow. expectations? That's a great question. I think the first time I was so nervous and so anxious and so worried, I just didn't want to mess up. And I was actually more focused on me mm -hmm. than the people I was trying to meet. Once I got into the room and I heard people uh, talking about their fears, their anxieties, I met people who were literally dying for legal assistance, I realized that this is not about me. And now when I go, I, I'm, I'm trying to prepare for who I'm going to talk to. What are their needs? What are their challenges? I'm trying to anticipate how I can be helpful. Because I know when I end that visit, I'll get to go home. They have to go back to a condemned cell. I've learned to kind of be client-centered in ways that, for me, has been very, very affirming. Cool. What's the most prominent case that you can talk about that EGI is working on right now? Well, we really want to do something about uh, mental illness and the way that we are not responding fairly to people with severe mental illness. Um, we have about 600,000 people who are disabled, severely disabled in our jails and prisons. We have an Americans with Disabilities Act that we enforce in the private sector. We enforce it in the public sector. The one place where we don't enforce it is the justice sector, and I think that's wrong. And so we want to advocate uh, and, and create new protections from people who are subjected to mandatory sentencing where the judge isn't allowed to consider their disability. I think that's just going to lead to cruel outcomes, and we've seen some of that. And then the other thing is conditions. We talk a lot about criminal justice reform, but the conditions of imprisonment in this country and many states haven't been this bad for decades. The violence, the abuse, the corruption, uh, it's an epidemic of addiction going on that we have to respond to. So those are the things I'm really concerned about right now. Cool. Thank yes. you, Brian. You're that very is my welcome. time. I'm so happy to finally well, be here face to face. Well, it's great to meet you, too. And not, you know, having lobby drama. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's right. That's All right. 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 It's great. Hollywood Live. Hey. Hey. <laughs> so, gentlemen. Yes, ma'am. Um, yes, ma I know you had a birthday in February. Mm -hmm. And I, you, you had a birthday a couple of days ago. I had a birthday in February? No, he, he a, had a birthday in February. It's coming up. You know what? You had one a couple of days ago, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So this is for, this is for both y'all. Happy birthday oh, to sure. you. Oh, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday to you. Yeah. All right, there we go. There you go. Get it on in. Get it on in. All right. Is it never too late for justice, or is it never too late for justice for us? It seems like fights are generational, you know, and... There was a bunch of freedom fighters, civil rights activists that fought that fight at a time where it was needed, you know, to, to get to get to a certain point, to break down a certain amount of barriers. After that was kind of wiped out and kind of, you know, moved away through generations, it was lost a little bit. <clears throat> and I think there's a resurgence that's getting ready to, you know, that, that's here, you know, that's getting ready to, to, to build upon right now. And Brian Stevenson is at the forefront of that. Behind closed doors, you know, in the places that really matter. He's not out on social media. He's not out, you know, here. He, he's very quietly behind closed doors doing the things he needs to do in order to make real change. And he's making, it, you know, a true effort. He's dedicated his life to it. Uh, it's our job. It's my job, you know, to, as a part of this regime to put that message on the biggest platform possible. To get people to see it as much as possible. To be able to embody that character uh, uh, and get that message out. To get his work out. Um, and, you know, 
and hopefully these conversations will start happening again, you know, that that uh, start demanding answers from these broken systems, you know, and uh, and be able to get some some real change going. I, I talk about this all the time. Uh, I think it was me and Puff having a party a few years back, and, and we had this moment. I don't know if he remembers it or not, but we was like, man, who's going to be the next leaders? Because we were seeing our Jesse Jackson, our Al Sharptons, who are now older, and who's going to fill that space? I don't think that my generation did because I didn't think that we had to because we weren't privy to what the young generation is privy to now with social media being able to see oh underneath the carpet there's still these evil horrific things going on what you have to appreciate about Michael B. Jordan is the the, the non-fear factor of speaking about my people and what we're going through in my art. He could be doing any big movie in the world. He comes back to this after Fruitville Station, after Killmonger, who has that same narrative of what about us. I think that we will have to lean on him. And I don't even know if he realizes how big it is and how much, like sitting with my daughter watching his movies the other night, mm. they look to that like that is their new leader because that's the way they get their information. So um, I think it's important to tell these stories and it's important to support uh, Michael and his efforts to keep these stories alive. Thank you so much. That's my Thank time, you. gentlemen. Happy birthday. Go ahead. Okay. Okay, so because I, I layered this this episode with so many interviews and thank you so much brian stevenson jamie fox michael b jordan for your interviews and for and for warner brothers for allowing me to speak with them i have more interviews with brie larson karen kendrick tim blake Ness nelson and rob morgan i will sprinkle those out during the week as the film anticipates so be on the lookout for those on my instagram pages my Facebook pages, my site, thecurvyfilmcritic.com, and um, they will be up there in the video section as well. So take a, a, a look and a listen to those on all those different platforms. And my handle everywhere is The Curvy Critic on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, everywhere. All social media, I'm The Curvy Critic. So you will find all of those interviews regarding Just Mercy there. Now, there's another film that I also talked about at, that I saw at the Sundance Film Festival that I absolutely adore. It's called Clemency. I've talked about Clemency here ad nauseum. I did an interview a little a few weeks ago with Alfrey Woodard and Aldous Hodge from that film where we chatted about Clemency and, and Capital Punishment and all of that. So, this time I spoke with the, pl the playwright, the director, and the screenwriter, Chinoya Chuckle. Um, she is fabulous. It was my life's mission to meet her and talk to her after I saw the film at Sundance because I was so incredibly impressed with her. She is the first black woman to win the grand jury prize, excuse me, at Sundance, at the Sundance Film Festival this year as we're gearing up for the Sundance Film Festival in 2020. But in 2019, Shinoya Chukwu won the grand jury prize for Clemency. Here's my interview with her right now. 
have been a huge champion of yours Thank since Sunday. You. I, I see, I saw that. Thank I'm you. always on Twitter going, y'all should check her out. Y'all should Thank check her you. out. Even before it got released, I was like, y'all need to watch Clemency. Y'all need to watch Thank Clemency. You. I was all about some Clemency. Thank you. Because when I watched it at Sundance, it messed me up. It is one of those films that after you watch it, it sits with you for a minute. Mm. Every word that was spoken. Every scene that was played out, I can remember it vividly, mm. and I can't say that about a lot of films. Girl, how did you go from being like a black person in Alaska <laughs> to teaching <laughs> to teaching screenwriting in prisons? That's I, that's what I, that is the pressing question. Inquiring minds want to know. So first of all, my parents are petroleum engineers, right? So oil, right? So that's what got us to Alaska. Okay. And I've always wanted to be a filmmaker since I was 13, but I was too scared to... Pre- well, not... I wasn't even scared. No, it was I was a child of Nigerian immigrants. And they're like... And so I made a short film when I was in college um, to get into help me get into film school. And that also was kind of cathartic for me to explore. I went to a predominantly white institution. So did I. We have that in common. I was a military brat, and more often than not, I was the only person of color in my schools, or one of the few yes. in my schools. Yeah. Yes. And so and- I went to Howard. <sighs> yeah, that's a whole other conversation. We'll talk oh, about yeah. that again. <laughs> I mean, off the record. <laughs> um, and, and so I, um, the doc I made was about being a black woman on a predominantly white campus. And it was just navigating that experience. And I was focused, man. I did a short every year. I knew right after when I graduated, I was going to do my first feature. I was just on it. But I was in my ego about filmmaking. I was, atta- I was attached to outcome and external validation and success. And mm-hmm. so I think consequently some of my work suffered because I wasn't focused on craft as much as I was on the external outcome. Mm-hmm. And I learned that lesson after making my first feature. Mm-hmm. And so after I took some time, I, I also started teaching in grad school. And teaching was just something I did solely for money at first, but it completely changed my life. This is the single most transformative thing I've ever done. Well, I kept teaching and, and I've been, I mean, I've been teaching for over 10 years. So when I decided to make clemency, I knew that I wanted to, I need, it was important to advocate for the people who are incarcerated, the people whom I'm representing in the film. And as I was spending a lot of time in the prisons working on clemency cases, I just decided I need to take my college curriculum to the prison. Brian Stevenson's film, Just Mercy, he's dealing with it from a legal standpoint or somebody that's legal that feels like just be, this is somebody's mother, brother, father, sister, cousin, whatever, just because they've created some heinous crime in some instances doesn't mean they should go without mercy. And in your film, Clemency, you have this character played by Alfre Woodard, Bernadine, who is struggling at all ends of her life, in her professional life, in her personal life, but she still has compassion for these people, especially that one. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, being someone who's worked in the prison system and has seen what all of that is, how do you feel about capital punishment at this point? Has working in the prison system changed your mind about capital punishment? I mean, before and before I started writing Clemency, I was against capital punishment. Okay, you know, um, and so that stayed the same. <laughs> but like that has not shifted. That has not shifted. Um, but my deepened empathy for those who are incarcerated and expanded through this process and this, I was able to see up close and personal how so much of this could have been avoided if our societies would have seen so a lot of people who've been in, who are incarcerated as human beings and have invested in them and their potential for greatness. Mm-hmm. I mean, the trajectory would have been completely different. 
And so I saw that up close and personal. I also got the, I also learned the valuable lesson that I can't define people by their worst possible acts. And I take that with me everywhere I go. You and Brian have that in common. I hope that you, have you all met yet? I have met him a couple times. He's like a personal hero of mine. Are you <laughs> okay. kidding? Because I'm it's like, y'all, y'all are kind of in the same way. Oh my God, no, he's a personal hero. I've learned so much from him and he's a personal hero of mine. And I just... I Just Mercy is an excellent book and I'm just he's like have you met him I haven't met him but I've interviewed him I'm gonna meet him on Saturday there I'm going to New York feel the energy he just he's like my mom loves him my mother saw the reason I even paid attention to Brian Stevenson is my mother saw him do a TED talk and she was like you gotta meet him you gotta talk to him this season is unprecedented with the amount of films that female filmmakers have made Women of color and non-women of color. It's been 10 women. 10. I counted them. Mm. 10. And I saw all 10 of the films. Mm. How about that? So I'm kind of, a. I don't know about you, but I'm a little annoyed. I'm a little annoyed as a female film critic of color Mm -hmm. that we have 10 excellent films, better than some of these films that are out here by these men, no shade, Mm -hmm. that are not being recognized. And I'm wondering, what advice do you have for someone like me on this end of the spectrum to kind of help change that trajectory. I mean, I think it's a couple things. I think that to do what you're, what you've been doing, continuing to support us and watch our films and buy the movie tickets and spread the word and um, and just continue to champion us and encourage other people to champion us. I think that that's absolutely critical. I think that you know, from the filmmaker perspective, it's tough because my f- film clemency wouldn't have the platform that it's had and wouldn't be where it's at unless it won. At Sundance, and I'm clear about that. And congratulations on Thank that, so being much. the first woman of color to win the grand jury prize. Yes, yes. first black woman. There are other women of color, but first black woman. That's what I'm saying. Oh, that's that's right. that's, did I say woman of color? You said woman of color. Look, first black woman. Let me be clear. First black woman to win. Yes, ma'am. And correct so I, me. And so, and so, because you know there are other women of color. And so I'm aware of what those external accolades can do. But to, but along with that, I've really had to detach from the ego of it and focus on the work but it's a catch-22 because my my opportunities and possibilities have expanded since Sundance because of the win I don't know how concretely to to have institutional change other than the decision makers have to change so the decision makers who remain need to be intentional about being allies do you think that moving around as a kid Especially growing up in Alaska, mm-hmm. do you think that gave a big, huge input into your future filmmaking or your future as a filmmaker and as an artist? What do you mean? Because I know that w- I was a military brat, so okay. I moved all over the place. Okay. And I find that my lens on life is very different than most people mm-hmm. because of that. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was just wondering, since we had that similar experience, mm-hmm. if your lens in life was colored by moving around and being being the only one or being the one of the few in a situation. Being a Nigerian-American woman in Alaska, having to navigate that kind of, those cultural dichotomies has absolutely transformed the way that I see the world. I mean, it has, my life has existed in the gray. I was not Nigerian enough. I was not black enough when I, <laughs> I would get ridiculed by like, in college, because I grew up in Alaska. Right. But my name is Chinoyami Buchi Chuku. But okay. <laughs> You're like, this is my name. This is my name. I was born in, you know, born in Nigeria. But, uh, or I wasn't American enough, or I wasn't this enough. And so I, I was always 
in this in-between space. And I think that that definitely has helped my filmmaking in that I'm able, I, I really am intentional about creating characters who also exist in the gray, which I think is what we see in Clemency. After this has had nationwide release, what is the one thing you want people to know about Clemency? Because I know what I walked away with. What'd you walk away with? I walked away with a sense of reevaluating how I look at people in the prison system. Mm, yes, yes. That's what yes. I walked away with. I walked away with having compassion for the people that have those jobs. Because mm. you, when I've had some family members that were incarcerated, mm. and when you walk into those facilities, the prison guards and the wardens and everyone that works there, they seem so mean and so cold, and we oftentimes forget they have issues and they have home lives and they have you know, that's a job that emotionally and physically takes a toll on you mm-hmm. and we forget that when we walk in and when we walk out mm-hmm. so that's what I took away I mean I think you nailed it I want people to have compa- I want people to have more empathy and compassion for those who are incarcerated and for the humanities that are tied to, directly tied to incarceration bare minimum and cool. people who never thought about capital punishment or prisons I want them to know what the, hum- the humanities that are at stake when we say that someone should be thrown in prison and we should throw away the key. Well, thank you, my Alaskan, Nigerian yes. sister. Yes! Grand jury, Sundance winner. I'm so happy I had a chance to talk Likewise. to you. Why? Because, girl, I'm telling you, when I saw that film, I was like, it was going to be my life's mission at some point to talk to you. I didn't care if it was on camera, off camera, where it was. I didn't care how it was. I just knew I had to speak thank to you. you. I had to. Thank you. I mean, I really... I appreciate you seeing me, seeing this film and supporting me and supporting the film. And like, I, like I genuinely mean it. Like I, I see you and it just, it goes a long way. And I see you right back. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Me and Chinoya, we kiki keyed. I know it was really long, but I really wanted y'all to hear it because I felt like what she had to say was uber important. And um, yeah, so there's that. So that does it for this episode of The Curvy Critic with Carla Renata here at Black Hollywood Live. If this is your first time joining me, please click the subscribe button below. Give me a thumbs up to let me know you were here. And next week for December 29th, episode 93. (sighs) Episode 93. I was hoping I could hit 100 before the year was out, but we'll hit 100 next year with some new branding and everything then and we'll celebrate all that then but um episode 93 will be the best of the curvy critic with carla renata here at black hollywood live it has been my pleasure to bring you film reviews to bring you interviews to bring you news about the latest releases the film news happening here in hollywood abroad documentaries so on and so forth I have really enjoyed it. I enjoy you supporting me. I enjoy you watching me. I enjoy you listening to me on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, all of those platforms that are out there that carry the show. And I want to give a special shout out to Scott Menzel because Scott Menzel started this journey with me. And for personal reasons, he had to bow out. But he started this journey with me. And I probably wouldn't be here this long if he had had not started this journey with me. So thank you, Scott. Thank you to Angelique Jackson for continuously coming every time I called you and asked you to join me. Thank you to Jasmine. Thank you to Travell Anderson. Thank you to the plethora of people, my, my girls Katia and uh, Sharonda 
and KB, who when we came back from South by Southwest, I said, come on the show. Let's talk about some movies. And they graciously obliged. Thank you all so very much for supporting me and for um, helping me build up this show here at Black Hollywood Live. It is the top 10 show at the station. So I'm really proud of that. And yeah, so until the next time, you can find me across all social media platforms at The Kirby Critic. You can also find me right after this normally at After Buzz TV doing the General Hospital After Show with Frank Moran, but we are off from the General Hospital After Show for the next two weeks, so we won't be back until January 5th as well. And uh, yeah, you guys, that does it. So until the next time, love, peace, and hair grease, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Bye.